0: Hello and welcome back to Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. We've been talking about climate change and energy for the past few weeks, and compelling as the topic is, there's a large hole in a conversation that reduces global warming to merely the search for alternatives to fossil fuels. But keeping the lights on in a carbon neutral way is only half the story. Getting the world to restrict global warming to no more than 2 degrees Celsius, or even better, 1.5 degrees Celsius, is only half the battle because global warming is also having a dramatic effect on what we eat. I saw somewhere recently that climate change and high temperatures are reducing the total global production of food by around 35 trillion calories a year. That sounds like an enormous amount. I can't tell you exactly how much, but my guest today may be able to have a stab at it. It's a pleasure to welcome UCT's Dr. Chris Tresos, Senior Researcher at the African Climate and Development Initiative where he directs the Climate Risk Lab. I watched him last week presenting the second report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, a UN effort to track climate change and try to find ways to deal with it. Chris, thank you for your time. The second report was, I guess, a global audit of the effects of climate change thus far, following on the first which described the science of climate change you warned in the second report that lives are at risk even if carbon emissions are dramatically cut you expect heat waves in southern africa to double if progress is slow they could increase 12-fold let's assume we end up somewhere in the middle of that not between good and bad what are the implications for our ability down here to feed ourselves
1: so hi peter thank you for having me yes the the situation is extremely serious and the report, the IPCC report you referred to is clear that we're at a stage where there are severe risks to human and mm-hmm. natural systems coming in the near term future. In many cases, some of these risks are already here. And in an African context, a major challenge is food security under future climate change. And so at around, we're at around 1.1 degrees Celsius global warming currently and that's measured since 1850 to 1900, so against a pre-industrial baseline. The world to date has warmed around 1.1 degrees Celsius, and already at that level of global warming, Africa has seen relatively widespread impacts on food security. For example, there have been reductions of around the order of 5% in maize yields. For wheat crops, the reduction has been around 2%, and What is especially concerning is that although due to technological progress, the increase in agricultural productivity has continued, there's evidence that since the 1960s, because of climate change, that rate of increase has started to slow. And the reduction in agricultural productivity growth in an Africa context is estimated at about 34% reduction. And that's more than any other major continental region. And so when we look to the future, some of the statistics you were quoting, around 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Celsius, some of the major risks we see are at 1.5 degrees Celsius, which we could reach in the next few decades or the next couple of decades even. That could be a decline in the wheat crop in Southern Africa of over 50%, even when implementing adaptation actions. And by 2 degrees Celsius, we could start to see widespread failures in crop systems across staple crops across Africa, so major yield declines for staple crops across Africa, e- again, even when implementing adaptation options. Chris,
0: is Southern Africa getting hotter more quickly than the rest of the world?
1: Uh, yes, Southern Africa is warming faster than the global average. Many land regions are warming faster than the global How average. Is that? Why? Uh, part of that is the... Global average is calculated as the warming of the land and the oceans, and the oceans warm slower than the land. So most land regions are warming faster than the global average. But also in a southern Africa context, we have some extremely hot regions that are warming fast, such as areas of the southwest of South Africa.
0: You you warn that particularly the southern the southern cape is in terrible danger.
1: Yes, so the the southwestern part of Southern Africa is an area where there is relatively high confidence that with further global warming, we will see prolonged and more intense drought conditions. Uh, And we've already seen this, for example, the reduced rainfall that led to the Cape Town drought, the 2015 to 2017 drought of the day zero conditions, that reduced rainfall is estimated to have been three times more likely to have occurred because of human-caused climate change
0: you 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 mentioned that that and there is so much information in this report it is very difficult to have a a short conversation about it but you do say uh, and you we, and we're talking particularly about south, southern and south africa um although the report was a global was a global effort um you say south africa's gdp per capita is already 6% lower than it should be compared to 1991 because of climate change um one, how do we, f- you know, we're not. I was going to ask you how we fix that, but as I ask you, I also wonder whether GDP per capita is a useful measure. I mean, what what metric do we use to know whether we're doing okay or not, or whether we've got to do more and more quickly? Uh,
1: a, a major metric is greenhouse gas emissions in the context of climate change. A the major factor or a major factor driving risk is increasing greenhouse gas emissions, and so the first most important thing we can do to reduce future risks is act collectively as countries around the world to rapidly reduce through deep cuts in greenhouse gas emissions, the cause of climate change. The second metric that is really important is accelerating adaptation. And in in that case, there are lots of measures of this, but one that is crucially important for South Africa is finance allocated to adaptation actions. So a a major part of the solution is reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Another major part of reducing future climate risk is adapting to climate change. Climate change is already here. We are seeing the negative impact of it. Societies and economies and urban centers especially have to adapt to reduce these risks. And in an African context, governance and institutional challenges are a major barrier for that. Financial challenges are a major barrier. And then also, technology, information, and awareness, education are, are large barriers. And so me- metrics there, one is, is really finance allocated to these adaptation actions. And for example, and this is glo- talking globally now, but also in an African context, overwhelmingly finance targeting climate action has focused on on mitigation. And that's a good thing that a lot of finance is focused on greenhouse gas mitigation. However, what this report is, the science is clear there needs to be a, a huge increase in finance allocated to adaptation actions. So this is things in an agricultural context such as supporting the diversification of crops, supporting the access to drought-tolerant seed varieties, and supporting in an urban context long-term planning that takes account of climate change.
0: I'm, I'm interested in the point you make because you'd say that, you would know, say that large-scale specialist farms... Um, major sort of wheat producers I guess and other grains are most at risk because of a lack of diversity but on the other hand you make the point that food production in Africa which is not really highly specialized uh, and which is I presume quite varied is also dropping quite uh, dramatically how certain can you be of where the sort of sweet spot is in terms of what a climate resilient agricultural economy might look like in in southern africa
1: yes in in that context i'm not sure as a sweet spot is is necessarily we're talking very much about reducing risk and, and risk management uh, that said there's there's certainly the, the lowest level we can hold global warming to the the better so right now commitments on reducing greenhouse gases, the more in line they can be with 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, the better, the more beneficial for African agriculture. And that's important because this report that came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has some of the strongest evidence to date on future limits to adaptation. And so... One of the things it is quite clear on is that above 1.5 degrees Celsius, but especially above 2 degrees Celsius in many places in African agriculture, even when adaptation efforts are implemented, for example, irrigation to cope with heat conditions, those adaptation efforts start to become insufficient. And an example there is when you have a combined heat and drought effect, it might be that irrigation is an effective adaptation under high heat stress for crops. But if you have a drought at the same time, then your capacity to irrigate is you reach that adaptation limit. Another example is uh, new genetic varieties of maize. There's concern that with increased global warming above 1.5 or especially above 2 degrees Celsius, there, there will be a shortage of new genetic varieties of maize to be able to handle that, those types of heat conditions. And that at the moment, there's already evidence that adaptation is lagging behind the pace of climate change when it comes to things like new genetic varieties of crops. So that, that first part that's really important is increasing the, the greenhouse gas mitigation. A second part that I'll mention quickly is increasing access for African farmers, including in South Africa, to things like early warning systems. In South Africa, we're fortunate that we're better off than a lot of the rest of the continent on this. But things like investment in weather station networks that can then be used to provide scientific models and algorithms that can inform farmers in advance of a coming weather hazard, giving them more time to prepare.
0: You know, we're all sort of tech addicts in one way or another. We all have weather forecasting uh, apps on our cell phones, our mobile phones. Uh, The Norwegians seem to be able to tell me um what's going to happen in the little village i live in later on this afternoon um surely that technology doesn't have to be developed uh, by poor african countries if it's available um on you know satellites or whatever kind of technology it requires from richer countries can't they just share it more effectively
1: so yes you hit on a a major adaptation enabler here, and that is increased uh, technolog- technology sharing and intellectual property sharing uh, between developed and developing countries. There is an- another aspect of this though, and that's many African countries lack regularly reporting weather station networks. And so for many parts of Africa, you need that on the ground data to train these early warning systems to provide the locally context relevant information. For example, satellites detect rainfall But in order to accurately calibrate that information for a local context, it helps a lot to have a weather station on the ground with a rainfall meter so you can calibrate your satellite measurements. And unfortunately, for a lot of Africa right now, those reporting weather station networks on the ground are very limited.
0: And the interesting thing is, it's not very high tech. I mean, I have a rain gauge in my garden, which um, um, I take quite a lot of pleasure in checking um, when it's raining. Um, This is not high tech. Stuff it's a matter of keeping a record, i presume
1: some of it is is relatively lower tech um there is quite a lot of work though involved in in having a, a station network that follows sort of international best practice and cali- does a lot of calibration and correction of particular measurements to be consistent with international reporting so institutionally it is it is quite a lot of work and then maintaining the technology often in quite remote locations takes takes quite a lot of work but yeah you're right we're, we're talking about an investment that would would more than likely more than pay itself back in terms of early warning systems and information it provides to africans Yeah uh,
0: Chris the the um, the report contains a litany of of warnings and and some of them are quite quite alarming you know you you talk about pest related losses to maize crops increasing uh, by 50% across The continent, even if global temperature increases are kept within, you know, the current conventional targets, Uh, you talk about specialist farms being being hit hard, as we mentioned earlier on. And I was particularly interested in the way the world of workers affected. You say heat stress will reduce working hours and work capacity, especially for outdoor workers. And in Africa, there are more of those than perhaps elsewhere because of agriculture. You you know, you talk about emission cuts leading to warming of three degrees centigrade, which is very high, would decrease labor capacity by up to 20%. And, of course, if labor capacity uh, is reduced, prices would tend to, to rise. All of this is happening at the same time as the world's population is increasing. Are there technologies that, were, that can help or do we have to just do this the hard way?
1: I think… There is a lot of doing it the, well, not necessarily doing it the hard way. There are are lots of real opportunities for win-win situations in the transition to renewables. And so it it could be that up to around three degrees Celsius global warming, which is not out of reach, that bad situation is not out of reach given current emissions pledges from uh, global governments. We're, we're not yet firmly on a course to below two degrees Celsius. That is, the those are the political targets, but action to date has not um met the, the pledges. And so we need not just a further more ambitious pledges, but also more ambitious action. Uh, that said, one of the things this report is clear on, uh, when you say doing it the hard way, a, a lot of these opportunities have multiple co-benefits. For example, transitioning away from coal and to renewable energies also has a major benefit in terms of reduced air pollution-related illness that can increase uh, individual productivity as well as increase health for children and increase local environmental services from things like watersheds that would no longer be polluted. So a, a lot of this is in taking the climate action. You see some major benefits to society beyond just the reduced global warming, but also from other negative impacts we have from fossil fuels. I would say the same is true of a lot of adaptation options. And one thing that the report is quite clear on, which is is a hopeful sign, is in many African countries that are already quite extensive, particularly in Southern Africa, quite extensive social protection programs. And many of these, like in South Africa, have actually been expanded during the COVID-19 p- pandemic. For example, cash transfers to those who are vulnerable, such as uh, certain unemployed people. And there's there's good evidence that those can protect the most vulnerable from climate shocks, even if they're not directly climate targeted. So an example of this would be someone who has subsistence agriculture and receives a social grant. And when there's a climate shock, they lose their crops, but because of their social grant, they're still able to afford food for their family. And so there's a lot of effort, uh, sorry, evidence that focusing adaptation actions on those most vulnerable in society can have the greatest well-being gains. And one more really. I think interesting and, and like bright spot is there are a lot of opportunities to integrate climate risk work into the social protection programs. And South Africa has a, a fairly good history of this with things like the working for water program. So that's a program where people are employed through the government to go and remove alien invasive trees from river catchments. For example, those around Cape Town. And by removing those trees, you improve the water security of those river catchments and thus the city of Cape Town. And so that's a climate action. And at the same time, through giving those people employment, you're protecting them from climate shocks. And so you're having this win on the social side, on the environmental side, and on the reducing future climate risk. So so smartly designed programs like that, there's a lot of opportunity for generating wins across multiple sectors. And that's something this report really emphasizes is we're at the stage now where this isn't about just the Energy Department or the Environment Department, it really requires an all of government approach, including from Treasury and Finance and planning Ministries to get involved in coordinating a, a climate response.
0: One of the constant refrains in the in the report is the need for speed, and you make the point a number of times in in the South African or the Southern African uh, section of the report, and at the same time though um, the South African Government keeps calling for what it calls a just transition from coal to renewables to protect jobs i presume, and I just wonder I presume that by definition they are in a way kind of putting the brakes on a on a quick um on quick action because of the social effects of it and I just wonder how compatible what you understand to be the just transition and and speedy action. Are. i mean are they do they you know are they do they defeat each other
1: i think there are many examples where they can work together so the, the report is clear the science is clear it's unequivocal that climate change presents a severe threat to human and ecosystem well human life and biodiversity on the planet uh not i'm not talking an existential threat to human life i'm talking a severe threat to degradation of our well-being and of the health and well-being of of people all around the world, and along with those ecosystems, and so there's a, a rapid, there's a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a more livable future, and so climate action in the next decade is critical. That said, all all countries need to come together on this, on the emissions reductions, and all countries also need to go at um, paces that are suitable. Um, for them. It's a collaborative effort. The report doesn't comment on the policies of any country in particular. Um, what is clear, though, in the context of the just transition, and what this report refers to as climate resilient development, is that there are, like I was saying, many co-benefits of more rapid action. And so one of these is, is holding global warming to a lower level. And in the context of a, a South African case, this is now not in the report, but but in the South African case, we, we heard from um, COP26 of strong political pledges for around $8.5 billion to help South Africa transition more rapidly to renewables. Um, there are large benefits of joining that renewables economy more rapidly in terms of a country being at the technological forefront of future energy systems, as opposed to being left behind in terms of innovation and development. Um, there are also benefits in terms of training people in the future the energy systems of the future as opposed to those those skills being um, left behind
0: well, let me let me put the question another way and i don't want to get you involved in a political you know to what extent are you encouraged or discouraged um by the debates you see the political debates you see in our, in south africa around the just, just transition the constant efforts to explore for fossil fuels offshore, um, the constant defense of uh, coal, and as I say, the need for the just transition. It just seems to me to be um, that the two are at political uh, sort of odds in a way. Uh, You know, the the, the case to me for more rapid introduction of renewable energy is is, is patently clear, but you know it turns out that on the ground the complexities make it almost not impossible, but you know the complexities are such that it won't be possible to do it quickly. We've got to wait for this bid window and that bid window um uh, and it all seems incredibly slow how how do you what's your gut not your gut feeling i suppose, but, but do you think that we are on top of this? Do you think we got this?
1: Uh, again, as as the report, we don't speak directly to making policy recommendations. Um, I, what I can say from the science, though, is that the science is, is clear, it's unequivocal. Rapid and deep emissions cuts are required in the near-term future um, from globally to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and limit global warming to a level that can secure a livable future for people and the planet. And so in the context of the discussion in South Africa, what the report is clear on would be that policymakers consider this report deeply in setting any timelines they have for greenhouse gas emissions cuts within a particular country to, I would hope, from a science perspective, be consistent with that requirement for global greenhouse gas reductions.
0: Let, okay, let me, sorry, I'm not trying to put you in the spot, but I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying trying to phrase the question in the right way. Would a more rapid, in your view would a more rapid um, advance of renewable energy, uh, solar or or wind, would that that in itself would be a just transition, surely. In other words, the more quickly we do it, the more quickly we're sorted. Um, And that by clinging onto coal and other fuels, we are delaying the inevitable.
1: Uh, yes, so the many of the pathways that are consistent with 1.5 degrees or below 2 degrees Celsius will have a rapid, especially for coal, a rapid acceleration away from coal and towards renewable energy. So in the context of, of resilience to future climate change and in the context of many African countries with populations that are highly vulnerable to climate change, such as the millions of people living in informal settlements in South Africa and even more in the continent at large, a just transition a, a climate justice focused approach would emphasize an accelerated transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewables and that's something that that's consistent with the underlying research in the ipcc report
0: chris if we if we are to to deal with this successfully right and um, um, uh, particularly in our farming and to be at least be able to feed ourselves if not our our neighbors do um, modified foods, genetically modified foods have a role to play
1: so in the in the context of the report i'm I'm not an expert on genetically modified foods in the in the chapter the Africa chapter of the report, where I was a coordinating lead author, we did not assess genetically modified foods extensively as part of an adaptation response option, um, other than in the context of things like maize varieties where there is some potential for genetic, and it's not necessarily genetic engineering. It's It can be genetic engineering. It can be selective breeding of crops. And so there, there is opportunity for genetic change within crops to make them more drought and heat tolerant. And so to, in that way, help adapt to future food security threats. What is clear, though, in the report is, especially beyond 2 degrees Celsius global warming, There is high uncertainty and in many cases, the projections that even with implementing things like irrigation and genetically modified crops, there would still be net losses in agricultural productivity and in agricultural yields. And so that's what's really emphasizing the importance of the limited global warming through greenhouse gas emissions cuts as a key enabler of being able to adapt
0: obviously to to limit to, to 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 limit it, but if you're saying anyway it will occur that there will be degradation, and anyway our population will will increase, where will we feed ourselves how will we feed ourselves
1: so there there is um opportunity for adaptation again i I'm, I'm I'm not saying that the the report is clear that the risks will increase with every increment of global warming it's still very much in the hands of human society, uh, particularly governments all around the world to make policy decisions and policy choices around how high we are going to let global warming climb. And so limiting to below two, especially holding to around 1.5, the risks are substantially lower than at higher levels of global warming. And in the context of food security in the African context. Conservation, agriculture, agroecology, which is a combination of multiple crops with also tree crops, are identified as, as options for adaptation in many systems. Again, irrigation in many instances can be important, but if global warming goes too high and you have the combination of heat and drought, then irrigation can become ineffective. It can also compete with other uses like hydropower, which are important for energy generation in many African countries. Um, there are opportunities also for improved food distribution and food processing. So globally, there are opportunities in equitable food trade, for example, for more equitable sharing of food production around the world, which could help increase food security. So the, the food chapter of the IPCC report has quite a lot of focus around food trade and food moving across borders as a way that could help adaptation in areas that are Suffering food shortages due to a climate shock at some future point, which
0: which is interesting because people there are a lot of people who argue that you know we sort of we sort of the age of globalization is drawing to a close um, as politics becomes more nationalistic and countries sort of draw in on themselves uh, in a way as as we are doing. But I want to ask you two final questions, Chris. Um, the first is. Um, uh, about the climate change science itself, and you've made the point a couple of times that the that it's clear that climate change is real and is happening. There are a lot of people in the world who think that it isn't. Uh, do they still? What do we do about them? I mean, do we? Do we? You know, is we still having? I say we, you, you, are the science. You still have a a, a battle to win, don't you?
1: Well, yes I, i'm not sure how much of that is is a battle of the science. I think there are a lot of um, countries in Africa where it is concerning that um, in some cases the majority of people have not heard of climate change or do not think that the primary cause behind that climate change is um, human through greenhouse gas emissions um, There is in an African context a lot of evidence that the strongest predictor of what we would call climate change literacy. So that's having heard of climate change, being aware of its causes and its implications. Um, A strong predictor of that is is level of attainment of education. So again, a, a development focus around education can have strong benefits for climate change adaptation. Another thing that's important in an African context is indigenous knowledge and local knowledge. There's this rich history of indigenous knowledge to cope with climate variability over millennia in an African context. And so there's also evidence that when adaptation programs include that indigenous knowledge on local ecosystems, for example, into their adaptation programming, they are more effective than just technological approaches. Um, I would say that, and this is also in the report, that recent protests and social actions from especially younger people, not just in South Africa, but around the world, have had an impact on accelerating climate action. And that is a very positive sign that young people globally are increasingly concerned about this problem and pushing for more rapid solutions. And that does seem to be moving the conversation on faster than it would have otherwise. So that's something I'm very encouraged by.
0: It is, it is encouraging. You know, you have, there's, a, there's a generation you can see who are trying to fly to, you know, Mars and other planets and a much younger generation is trying to save this one. Um but finally my last question Chris is about once again what sort of societies can deal with climate change and I wonder you know is there an economic model that would deal with climate change more effectively and would it would it even be democratic is it a form of capitalism can the, can market economies do this or do we need you know a heavy hand somehow um uh, perhaps to cut through um, opponents of climate change science um and get and get things done can can the world as it's structured now get this right in time
1: i think again the 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 ipcc report is clear that large scale transformations are needed in society and in in human systems including in cities in energy in the water sector um in the private sector and the public sector, large transformations are needed to secure this livable future, especially during the next decade, next decades, but the next decade of climate policy and action are critically important. And so I think the report is clear that large changes are needed. The report doesn't prescribe that that is um, a capitalist or other economic model. Um it, it doesn't get into those policy prescriptions, but it points out what many of these changes that are required are and, and some of them are a focus on the most vulnerable, um where the greatest gains in well being can be made through helping people adapt to climate change risks. Another focus is enormous cuts in greenhouse gas emissions and a shift towards rapid shift towards renewable energy. Um, and a third focus is a, a really a, a, re, a doubling and a redoubling of commitment to the conservation of natural ecosystems, both for their ability to help uh, reduce and control greenhouse gas emissions as well as to continue to provide the services we survive on. And so in many places in the world we see our current political systems are not delivering, they, m- they may be in many cases delivering pledges and promises but not sufficiently rapid action on that. And so I think the report is is clear that these changes need to happen and in each country, I guess, local contexts dictate the types of systems that can deliver that.
0: Well, I I don't really want to end this conversation, but I have to, uh, says my producer. So, Chris Tresos, thank you ever so much for your hard work and your caution and your knowledge and for sharing it all here. Um, And thank you all for listening. I'll be back at the same time next week. Bye-bye now. Take care.